Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. If you find out now, I, I understand, we, we've seen people even today speaking to us about AIDS epidemics and, and starving kids around the world and impure water supplies that people have to suffer with. Those are very important, critically important to us, and we must do something about those problems. But at the same time, as Arthur C. Clarke said, you know, the, the rotting of the human mind. The business of believing in the paranormal and the occult and the supernatural, all of this total nonsense, this, this medieval thinking, I think something should be done about that. And it all lies in education. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and podcast host, broadcasting live from the Double Wide on Exotics Farm out in Archer, Florida. Um, today we're going to talk about gene editing, but germline gene editing. What does it mean when we're changing the genetics or tweaking the genetics of early embryos to affect a trait that may end up in the final organism that now will be heritable forever? at least until that uh, lineage stops reproducing. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Christopher Gingell. He's a research fellow in biomedical ethics at the University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gingell. Uh, thank you for having me on, Kevin. I think this is great. This is an overdue episode because we talk every week about technology and we've spoken about germline editing um, a little bit, but mostly we're speaking about uh, these issues with um, like sickle cell disease. Can we correct someone's bone marrow to be right? But this is germline editing, and this is a whole different thing. So what exactly do we mean when we talk about germline editing? Yeah, so there's two different things we can tend to mean. They tend to get sort of um, thrown together in the literature. So the first thing that we can talk about is that we're editing germline cells. So we're editing sperm cells, egg cells, or early embryonic cells. So basically editing cells such that if those cells had descendants, they would be passed on in the future in that lineage. Um, 
But we can then also distinguish what's sometimes called heritable genome editing, which is germline gene editing done for the purposes of reproduction. So this allows you to sort of distinguish germline editing we might do in the lab, um, and we might do that for basic research purposes. So, yeah, you can distinguish between sort of germline gene editing um, generally and then heritable gene editing. I see. So like a research purpose might be to make a mouse model that is susceptible to some sort of cancer so that we could study different therapies or something like that. Yeah, so that would be a good animal case. Um, but with the human case too, you um, can do it to study early human development. So basically the first few stages of life. You can edit an embryo cells, um, see if a particular gene is important, for example, and then let it um, let that embryo develop. Um, and, you know, you can do that just as a basic way of studying human biology, even if you've got no intent to ever transfer that embryo into a woman and as of a achieving a live birth. I see. So a lot of this has to do with better understanding some of the early developmental events that happen and maybe testing the genes functionally that we think are involved, like maybe mutating them and seeing if they actually are involved, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So um, we still actually know very little about how a human cell goes from a zygote, which is a single cell, to this really complex multicellular organism. And of course, it's not something we can often really study um, easily directly. So this technology allows us, yeah, that's right, if we think a particular gene is important to turn it off, um, let the embryo develop and see see what difference that makes. I see. Uh, I, I, learned, I read recently that one in three successful conceptions doesn't make it past the first few weeks. And that's what's really interesting. You know, the early events that are happening have all kinds of interesting checks and balances to make sure things are happening correctly. And yet we know so little bit about that. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. And um, other species don't have that same high rate of natural pregnancy loss that we have. So I think in other primates, it's about 80% of fertilized embryos will go to the first trimester of pregnancy. But with humans, that drops down to under 30%. So we're unique in this sort of sense, and we don't know why. So you can really look at these really interesting questions using this technology. Well, how much of this is actually being done these days in humans? Yeah, so um, I think... I, I've lost count a bit, but I, I think there's sort of a dozen, maybe dozens of studies, mostly done in China. Um, so there's been a few studies in the US and UK and the majority done in China. But, you know, certainly that sort of 10 to 20 range, I think, in terms of the number of studies. Okay, so you're an ethicist. And so do you feel that the regulation is appropriate? And how do we balance this thing between need for critical cures against the need for understanding new technology? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a really important question. And my work has looked at sort of different regulatory settings around the world, um, and they are very, very different. So where um, I'm living in Australia at the moment um, has a regulatory system that's much like a lot of Europe, where even these technologies for research have strict regulations. Um, and, you know, I think that is far too restrictive. We've got a lot of legislation that was brought in around the sort of time of cloning Dolly the sheep, which makes it criminally um, prohibited to do this in a lab just for study development. And I think that's far too restrictive. Um, but we've also now seen places like in China where this technology is already being used to produce live babies, which I think is um, far too lax. So you're looking for somewhere in the middle there. 
Um, and, you know, I really think somewhere like the UK has the best regulatory structure for this type of stuff at the moment. In the UK, you can do research using this technology on early human embryos to study development as long as you don't implant them into the body of the woman. Um, and, yeah, then those reproductive applications are restricted. So, you know, that's what I think is a, a good sort of mix now. But I also would stress that I think you want an adaptive regulatory system in, in this setting where, you know, as soon as this technology is shown to be safe, which it looks like it will be, um, we're able to sort of use it for these clinical applications. And can you give me more of a sense of the landscape of this? Like how broadly applied is this? You mentioned China on one end of the spectrum, maybe the EU on the other, but what's happening in other places around the world? Yeah, so look, a lot of countries just won't have any legislation at all. Um, so they won't have any legislation at all governing these types of technologies. Um, and this can mean that, you know, you can get rogue sort of clinics set up. Like this has not, not happened for gene editing, but we see it with other reproductive technologies. So um, where I'm living in, in Australia, um, we have strict laws about what you can use genetic selection for, which is um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where you create a range of embryos, test them all for the presence or absence of disease, and then implant the ones you want. Um, but um, a country near us, Thailand, has no laws at all governing that, and you have IVF clinics set up in Thailand which will offer things like sex selection, um, which is illegal in Australia. So um, that is a kind of risk for these countries that don't really have any legislation. Um, but more generally, um, a lot of countries will have strict laws where they've banned it for all purposes, um, but the interesting ones are really the US and China. So in China, they don't really have any strict federal laws. They just have guidelines, which scientists um, can follow. <laughs> but it's unclear, you know, what there's unclear what the sanctions are if you break those guidelines. And the guidelines can change overnight. So they can just decide, you know, we've, we've changed our reproductive guidelines and here are new ones. Um, the U.S. legislation is always really special. It's always a bit, I always find it um, a bit, bit of a, a bit of a mess, but it's just very, very different. So again, there's no federal laws governing what you can and can't do with these technologies, but there are laws about what the FDA can spend money looking at and what the FDA can approve. Um, and there's also laws what the you know, NIH can fund. So there's basically laws about how you can spend money in the U.S. rather than laws about what you can and cannot do. Um, but basically what this means, if you are privately funding genetic research, you can do it in the U.S., but you can't use public funds, I think. Wow, that's really, really wild. Yeah. So, and I, I didn't know any of this stuff. So this is all brand new to me. I, I absolutely love this. And, and our audience, this is going to be a favorite episode. <laughs> is there any example of other things they're selecting for other than sex? Um, well, look, I think yeah, I think I've heard you can do height um, and thins, and soon that you know, basically the the general problem with selection has been it's never that powerful because it's limited by the number of embryos you can um, you can get, and in the average IVF cycle there might be sort of seven embryos. So if you're deciding between seven embryos, you know, you don't have that much of a, a sort of range. Sex is a good one because obviously you know it's a binary thing, so they either have it or you don't. Um, but this, I think this is sort of changing more and more. So we're starting to get, you know, polygenic scores, which is basically allows you to target these more complex genetic traits like sort of height and intelligence and things. Um, so I think soon it will be technically possible to do selection for those more complex sort of traits. 
um, and particularly if you find ways to increase the number of embryos you can you can produce as well. Well, if we think about therapies that are either you know on the horizon or things that may be here already, I mean HIV, right, where they were able to mutate the two Chinese twins. What are some of the easy targets that exist right now? Yeah, so a really simple application of the gene editing technologies is just to treat these what we'll call monogenic genetic diseases. So these are things like cystic fibrosis, um, Tay-Sachs, beta thalassemia, um, things that are caused by known mutation and we've got a good idea about what the gene does and the function of that gene. And we've got a good idea that in these cases where there's a mutation, it causes a loss of function. Um, so for these ones, it will be a fairly straightforward application of gene editing to correct that you know, spelling mistake in the genome um, to what is normally found in the population. And this would be seen as a sort of relatively low risk application because we know what the other version of the gene does kind of thing. So we're not introducing anything you know, fundamentally new into the human gene pool. So those would be um, the sort of first cap of the rank sort of cases for using this technology, if you will. Um, but the really interesting thing about it is that you can potentially target not just one, but you know, 60 genes has been done in one example, and you could potentially do more. So you could also, in the very future, you know, target these more complex genetic diseases, such as things like cancer and heart disease. Wow, this is really fascinating stuff. It, it's pretty amazing to me because why is this a gene editing thing where we're using maybe, you know, Cas9 type, you know, surgical editing, when why couldn't we just stick in a transgene with the corrected version before? Like nobody, it didn't seem like that was something people were trying to do, except, you know, in like gene therapy, with like, you know, cystic fibrosis, but it, it didn't seem to be such a popular threat. Yeah. So my understanding was that when you use those technologies, essentially with humans, they were just too inefficient and too imprecise to really have really good clinical profile. So what I mean by that is um, you would often, I think, only get the genetic change that you wanted in a small number of the cells that you were experimenting on. Um, and that you would also have more um, what's called off-target effects where you change other parts of the genome as well. So they're both imprecise and inefficient. Um, with this new class of gene editing technologies like the CRISPR-Cas9 system, um, it's essentially a more efficient way of performing this genetic engineering task. Um, and that's been really the advantage it has over those earlier systems. Well, this is really good stuff. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Christopher Gingell. He's a research fellow in biomedical ethics at the University of Melbourne. And we're talking about germline editing and how these uh, modern changes are changing potentially uh, traits in embryos. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. The term post-truth was added to the dictionary this last year. It refers to a political climate where emotion rules over evidence, and truths are framed by feelings of a majority rather than what is in fact reality. It happens in science too, and that's why science communication is more important than ever. And while you gentle podcast listener are a critical component 
of science dissemination. Thank you for listening to this podcast, but most of all, thank you for sharing the information with friends and families. Remind them of the good things technology can do. And of course, if you could write a review on this podcast on iTunes, it would be very much appreciated because it raises our visibility and helps us share more science. When misinformation abounds, credible sources need to shine, and you control the science chamois. Fact-free policy decisions can only be countered by a literate electorate, and you hold a key position in helping spread the evidence-based stories of science. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Christopher Gingell. He's a research fellow in biomedical ethics at the University of Melbourne. And we're talking about gene editing in germ lines. So can we produce heritable changes uh, for research and maybe to correct disease or in some cases, maybe change other traits? So recently your work has drawn a lot of attention because of the, you've been kind of weighing public sentiment towards this, and have seen some kind of surprising results. So what does the public think about germline gene editing? Yeah, so um, various studies have shown that the public is generally supportive of germline gene editing, and particularly when it's um, done for therapeutic purposes. So um, we sort of study this by asking the public to, first of all, disregard some of the safety issues because this lack of safety is a reason against any technology. It's not unique to gene editing. But when you ask the public if these technologies are, are, would be safe, would you use them? A lot of people think that you should be able to use them, especially for therapeutic purposes. So some of the studies that came out before we did our survey had shown that between 70 and 80% of people were supportive of therapeutic um, applications for gene editing. Our study found out it was over 90% of people were um, were supportive for these clear therapeutic re- reasons where it's a disease in childhood, for example. So we see this really strong support for gene editing, really, um, in studies of the public. It's really interesting because the the surprise of the study was is that if you knew the technology more, people were more opposed to it. And that seems completely backwards from the way normal this normally is, right? I mean, normally we tell people, well, the more you know, the better you're going to feel. But how does this break the rules? Yeah, it is really interesting. And you're completely right that this is the reverse of a trend that you would normally see when you ask people about um, novel technologies. It would normally be that the people who have science experience were more supportive for novel technologies. And we're starting to find the reverse, which I think is interesting. And I think it's in the context now that there is quite wide support for this publicly. But people with experience of genetics and genomics, I think, can understand that sometimes it's not as simple as it appears. So you might hear that, you know, they're editing, that's right, in China to make a baby resistant to HIV. And that sounds great. But I think people with experience of genomics might think, well, what are the side effects and what does that gene do? Um, Are you losing some function by changing that? Um, And you've got this more complex picture, I think, which experience with genomics allows you to see. That's really interesting to me. And I I know in your paper, you mentioned, you know, uh, once again, throwing out the deficit model, right? And and could you remind me where the paper was published? 
Uh, the Journal of Human Genetics. So the Journal Journal of Human Genetics. And I thought that was a really astute note there that you mentioned, you know, the uh, deficit model, which was basically we give people more information, the better they feel. This is exactly the opposite. No, that's exactly right. It is interesting. And, you know, I feel like it's coming up in this culture now of increasing acceptance of sort of science, but maybe also with more expectations from the public of what science should be able to do and can do for them. But what's really interesting about this is that even if you interviewed the same people and you said, instead of solving a disease in uh, children, we're going to solve a disease in plants, people would probably be very much against it. That's really interesting. I haven't I haven't thought about that aspect. Yeah, you you can you explain that for me? Well, because if you look at um, the sentiment in the EU, for instance, it's very anti-gene editing in plants. And this is where you're taking a mutation, say from barley, that confers resistance to a plant pathogen like powdery mildew, and that allele or that gene variant does not exist anywhere in wheat, but you can create it in wheat. And when you do it, it works, but you had to create that change. And yet people think that that is not permissible. So it's a really interesting dichotomy that if you're trying to appeal to a change in human health, that's perfectly fine. But if you monkey with food, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really interesting. Um, and particularly it's interesting too, because presumably if you would monkey around using standard breeding techniques, people are completely fine with that. But if you use a technology to make a precise change, for some reason, they think that's different. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've uh, talked about this as the Franken-food paradox for ages. And if you Google that, you find a really cool chart that shows the more precise the technology, the more people are opposed to it. And <laughs> It's, you know, but it's faster. It allows us to do so much, so much more quickly and so much more precisely. Yet those technologies are the ones that people don't like. Are you familiar with uh, Dan Kahneman's work, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow? Yeah, I am. Yep. Yeah, I think that that's where this triggers. I think that when you change food, you're appealing to the reptile brain and Maslow's hierarchy of needs first level there. You're um, touching people in the basic fundamental aspects of life. Whereas if you're talking about medicine, that's kind of a upper echelon executive function. I don't know. What, how do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you know, I think it's interesting to talk to someone with more planned experience because yeah, it's making me think about it in a different way. It, it's maybe your next study because it's, it's a really interesting conundrum that the same technology applied in a similarly constructive way to use less pesticide, for instance, or use less fungicide or insecticide, whatever, that is forbidden in the EU. And there's resistance to it in the, in the States um, to some degree. So very interesting angle on that. Yeah, but, yeah, it is. It is interesting. Um, and yeah, no, I think it's um, one of the interesting things I know about CRISPR-Cas9 was that it traditionally missed a lot of the definitions for a transgenic organism, right? Because it was making these changes rather than a introduced change from another species. It was sort of making these more novel changes. Um, and, you know, I think it was interesting that the Europe have, yeah, I think you know more about it than me, but made that sort of legislative change to consider them all as these novel animals and novel organisms and increase all the regulatory sort of blue tape around them. Well, it's still a problem here in the States. If you do gene editing on an animal 
And we've had people on this podcast for ages. We've had Allison Van Enenem who uh, made bulls that didn't require uh, their horns to be removed or cows, you know, yeah, the pulled horns and um, uh, pigs that don't get a deadly swine virus. These are technologies that we can't use because they're regulated as drugs in the States. That, that one shift in a letter turns it into a very elaborate regulatory scheme that is almost insurmountable. And so it, it's a very interesting question here. I, I guess another really cool aspect about your study that I really liked were some, I mean, everything was a surprise to me. What were some of the other differences when you compared perceptions by men and women? Yeah, so we then found um, that men were more supportive of this technology um, and particularly for enhancement purposes. So twice, I think they were twice as, twice as likely to support gene editing for, you know, cognitive enhancement or physical enhancement as opposed to um, women. And I think that is, um, that is a, a novel finding, but it's also tracked some of the other things that we find that, you know, men tend to be more supportive of these uh, novel technologies. Yeah, but you also showed that that was kind of a sticking point, that people were a little bit more put off when it was kind of a cosmetic application. If it was something like a genetic defect that led to a disease, they were cool. But uh, but what were the what, what was that sentiment? Yeah, so you find just this massive shift where you're talking to people about the applications. And when it's a therapy, you know, even for childhood and adulthood, you have over 70%, no matter what the sort of disease, being supportive. And as soon as you flip to something that's not a disease trait, that's a, what is sometimes tabled an enhancement trait, you, you know, drop to sort of 30% for some of the more mild enhance, for some of the more mild enhancements um, towards 10% for some of the more extreme ones. So you get this sort of massive shift wherever you go from um, treating a disease to not treating a disease. Um, but that is sort of confusing for some people in the ethics community because, you know, what is a disease and why is that, um, why is that important? And on, on some conceptions of a disease, it's, you know, it's merely a statistical notion kind of thing. If you happen to be in the bottom 20% of IQ, then that's considered a, a disease. But that should have no sort of intrinsic sort of ethical value where you are. So, you know, you get these interesting sort of shifts there um, and it's sort of unclear why people take that line um, so seriously. No, that's really interesting because it's just natural variation. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and maybe in other contexts other than in, you know, the world in 2020, that variation would have a very favorable outcome. So it's so I see how we're trying to we're starting to bias our lens as to what is the acceptable variation that we're willing to live with. And are we willing to make changes to those that are still in that range of variation that are not what we find useful in this day and age? Yeah, exactly. So I think it's yeah, it's this interesting sort of mix about what you do with this variation. And we obviously know as from population perspective, variation is important to a population to help it adapt and and thrive. So you do have this sort of um, dilemma about, you know, wanting to reduce suffering and, you know, help people survive in their current environments versus also perhaps safeguarding some variation that a population as a whole will need in the future. Well, well, that's a really important point because look at malaria and a sickle cell trait, right? I mean, it it's protects you from malaria, but gives you these other complications. And evolutionarily it was probably a very favorable trait to have 
that, you know, in our modern context where we don't have malaria, you know, as present in the industrialized world, it is a burden in another dimension. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and we get this too with the um, first ever, so with the Chinese twins that were edited to have a gene um, CCR5 um, knocked out. Now we know that this gene does provide, um, the version that they were edited with does provide protection against HIV, but it also makes you more susceptible to things like influenza. So there's really risk that um, I think for a population, if you all had, you know, the HIV resistant gene and you had a whole population like that, you'd be much more susceptible to more influenza pandemics and perhaps future unknown pandemics. So I think it makes sense for um, populations to have diversity in some of these immunogenes to sort of, you know, as you say, sort of protect you against sort of future pandemics. Well, it's really interesting stuff. Well, what were some of the other surprises of your study? Well, look, the main surprise for me was um, the really high levels of public sentiment after um, the work in China. So I'll just give a bit of background for that. So um, uh, an associate professor at a Chinese university, Dr. He Zhongkui, um, basically announced after these children had been born that he had used the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to knock out this um this gene to make them resistant to HIV. Now, that was considered to be a great um, violation of research ethics. It was a very controversial. There was massive media attention. It would have been the first time that the public probably would have even heard of the technology because it was all of a sudden on headline news. And it was all negative news. It was all negative coverage. And very few people were supportive of um, the study, saying it was way too early and way too risky. So we had actually thought that public support for gene editing would have gone down after that. We thought that the result of that um, coverage would have been more people more sceptical of the technology. So we were surprised to find the opposite. Um, not only had support, we think, not dropped off, but it actually got stronger. Um, so we didn't quite know what to make with it. It was really surprising for us. It is really surprising. But I think that people see any kind of new medical technology with a patina of hope and that, okay, if you can make twins immune to HIV, maybe you can provide a therapy for people existing, you know, with HIV or, or maybe, uh, you know, solve cancer or something. And maybe people see these kinds of moonshot events in medical science as being a little more acceptable. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that's maybe do what you hear. You sort of hear technology, you, you think about potential you think about the potential for your own life, and maybe that is what's sort of um, what's sort of driving some of these positive attitudes. Well, I think I said on another podcast, uh, you know, a few weeks ago that we were talking about gene editing and, and germline editing, and I, I think I said something to the effect of, if I have to live in a world with uh, beautiful, intelligent people, so that children don't die of preventable disease, it's a burden I'm willing to live with. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I think that's true. You know, I mean, there will be misuses and there will be cosmetic uses. It, it's like anything else. Um, but it's one of these things that we ultimately will take the, the bad with the good, I guess. Um, but but where, where do you think that that at least with your kind of read on ethics and how people feel about this, where do people really draw the line? Yeah, so I, I feel like there will be a lot of support for anything that is life-threatening. 
So anything I think that killed someone, a disease, I think people will be very much in support of sort of editing those sort of traits out. Um, and I think we will start to see this technology used in combination with IVF and genetic selection to help people avoid these really sort of deadly genetic diseases. But I think people start to draw the line at ones that don't really threaten your life, but just a life impairing somehow. So things like deafness and blindness, um, where you're not talking about something that you know reduces your life expectancy so much as just that makes your life harder or just different. And I feel like that's the first sort of cap of the rank where people start to think differently about these types of technologies. Okay, so that's the public side. You know, people thinking about, you know, where this line may be and where it may lie. But your study really showed that the more familiar people were with genetics and genomics, the more skeptical they were and the more um, maybe concerned they were. But do you think that the overall medical consensus just feels that maybe it's not ready for prime time and that there will be a lot more application of this soon? Yeah, so I feel the main hurdle um, and what might be driving skepticism too is that we just haven't done enough research with this technology in the particular cell types that are human embryos. So one thing I think we know about the technology of CRISPR is that it reacts differently in different cell types. And it's still unpredictable. And when you get the sort of studies looking in the research context, you'll get these, um, you get these, you know, cellular products where you've made the sort of edit, um, or you insert random bits of DNA at particular points. And often that won't be a problem, but it could be a problem. Um, so I feel like although there'd be nothing intrinsically wrong with editing someone's genome. I think the scepticism is whether these technologies will be able to do that purpose. And maybe we need to wait for some of the newer sort of gene editing models to come over, which will be even more precise than the ones we're currently using. Another group who frequently chimes in on these kinds of technologies are the really religious groups. And on one hand, you could imagine someone saying, well, this is using all of the tools that we've been given by a creator to solve problems of the human condition. Yet on another one, you can say, you know, life begins at conception and that's the way it goes and you're playing God. And where, where have people really chimed in on that? Yeah, so we know that um, religiosity is associated with um, reduced acceptance of these technologies. So we know it is a factor that's driving public attitudes. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's really complex to think about the reasons why and why not, um, particularly in the sense that genome editing um, could be a replacement technology for what is currently used, which is um, PGD, where you create a range of embryos and essentially discard the ones you don't want anymore. With gene editing, you could potentially just create one embryo um, and correct sort of any changes. So, you know, although in some sense, yes, you're editing um, the life of something, which might... Um, might be controversial under some sort of religious values. Um, in another sense, you know, you're really trying to preserve the life of an embryo rather than, you know, the alternative, which might be create a lot and discard some. So, you know, it's not clear to me that, you know, the religious angle should be completely against this technology as it does seem to be. Wow. Well, all I can say is that you've got the coolest job on the planet at this point, <laughs> <laughs> because this has so many interesting edges that, you can completely look at in a dozen different ways. And I think it is so cool. But you as an ethicist, somebody who is a bioethicist, how do you feel about the imperative to use this technology? Or is it something that maybe we need to have, you know, really strong, dis well, what do you think? 
Yeah, so look, I think as an ethicist, you know, I, I feel like the particular technology that we use to achieve something is a bit immaterial. And what we need to think about is, you know, what type of world we want to live in. And do we want to live in a world where there's less disease and less suffering? I think, of course, that we do. So I feel that we should be thinking about and developing this technology, you know, always within this light is how we can use this to achieve our, our things that we think are valuable and, you know, particularly how we can use it to reduce the death and suffering caused by genetic diseases. Um, so I feel like we need to have, you know, an open and adaptive approach to this technology. We should be careful with it. And I clearly think we don't know enough about it yet to start using it, but we should be open to it as well. Well, that's really great advice and really cool. And I hope that as things progress, I hope that you'll join me again in the future because this is such an important part of our discussion of technology. So thank you very much. If people wanted to know more about you, per, your program or maybe follow your program in social media, where would they look? You can follow my group on Twitter, which is um, Berg, B-E-R-G underscore M-C-R-I. Um, that is my group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, and you can follow, yeah, just follow my profile online too. Awesome. That's really crazy. Really great. So Christopher Gingell, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Kevin. It was great to be here. And as always, thank you for listening to another week of Talking Biotech Podcast. Keep your reviews coming. We really appreciate them. Uh, show us a little love on Patreon. That's helpful too. And share it with a friend. Tell somebody about uh, that you enjoy the content of this podcast. Share this one. This has got so many interesting edges and share it on social media so that more people can understand what this technology is, what it isn't, and the way other people are feeling about it. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. I'm James Randall. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.